The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 104.5 FM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, and 107.7 FM HD 2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And uh, Wikipedia is going to have a major redesign. This is the first one in a decade. This is big news for all you Wikipedia fans. And big carriers may no longer have a monopoly. There are now cheaper phone plans out there that use the mobile virtual network operation, the uh, MVNOs. And I'll talk about some of those plans, so you may be able to save quite a bit of money. And this week we're going to feature on the on the website of the week, a website that shows the ancient Earth mm. as it looked millions of years ago. So you can actually see where you lived relative to the dinosaurs back in the day. And we're also going to feature uh, a man who is... Uh, a very luminary person in computer science, Donald Knuth. He is the uh, computer scientist who wrote the multi-volume work, The Art of Computer Programming. He is father of the analysis of algorithms, and he's creator of a, uh, of a, of a text formatting system called TEX, T-E-X, which is really quite, uh, quite a nice system. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from uh, our Facebook page from Bill in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I enjoy your radio show every Saturday. I use cellular resellers, and I want to be certain that I receive updates from my cell phone. When an Android is updated, who is responsible for making the updates available to me? The phone manufacturer, such as Samsung or Alcatel, the cellular carrier, such as AT&T, or the reseller, such as Freedom Pop or Red Pocket. When buying a new phone, I want to select one that will, you know, support updates for a long period of time. Is there any way I can tell when the end of life is on a cell phone that I'm purchasing? Bill in Fairfax. Well, Bill... Um, this is kind of a complicated answer because the Android updates are not automatic as they are in an iPhone. In the case of the iPhone, Apple pushes out all the updates and the carriers can't stop them because it's a closed operating system and Apple controls it from soups to nuts. But on the case of Android, it's an open source operating system and the phone manufacturers can modify the Android operating system the carriers can modify the Android operating system, and it's there's fragmentation in the software. So anytime that Android or Google updates the core Android system and they push it out, there is a delay before the carriers will implement it because they've got to actually 
test out that operating system with all the modifications that they've made. And sometimes there's quite a bit of a delay before they actually do the update. And this created a huge problem for Google because the updates in some cases just weren't being made because the manufacturers were, uh, were always working on their next flagship product and it was just too much work to, you know, to keep the update you know, train going. And the carriers weren't so interested in making it happen because there's a lot of development work involved. And so Android did have a problem and they solved it. So they, they addressed this problem back in 2018 and they came up with something called Project Treble. Project Treble. And what that did, that took the core operating system that Android has, uh, they call it the Android Framework, and they put it in one partition all by itself. And then they took all the modifications that the that the, either the, the cell phone manufacturers made or the carriers have made, and they put all of those modifications, which are called the hardware extraction, abstraction layer. And they put all those hardware abstraction layer components, they call them HALs, H-A-Ls, in another partition. And they had a standardized way for the HALs to, to communicate to the Android framework. Now what that new system did, it meant that you could update the Android framework immediately and it wouldn't bother the HALs. And it allowed then Google to push out updates to the Android framework. And the idea is there would be less of a delay before those would go out because they wouldn't have to be double checked by the development teams, either at the carrier or at the hardware manufacturers. So what you want to do when you buy a new Android phone, you want to make certain that the manufacturer supports Project Treble. And that will assure you that the updates will get out there as quickly as possible. And all the big manufacturers support it, Samsung, LG, HTC, uh, they all support Project Treble. You can just uh, Google Project Treble Android operating system and you'll get a list of all the vendors that support it. That's the first thing that you wanna do. Now as to trying to figure out when the end of life is gonna be on a phone when it's no longer gonna get support, That's that's a, a little bit of a different question. If you, the, when Google has an operating system, they will typically send out updates to a particular operating system, say, uh, you know, say operating system um, 10, which would be the, the last one, 11's coming out now. They, they'll, they, they'll typically update an operating system for 18 months to 24 months. And then if you don't, upgrade to the next operating system, they're, they're not gonna support you. So the operating system has about an 18 to 24 month uh, life cycle, and then you've got to upgrade. Uh, if you get a phone with the very latest operating system, chances are you'll be able to upgrade it through a couple of cycles of future operating systems. They, they come out about every year. Uh, there's no guarantee on that because Google does not control the hardware uh, at all. And so, um, and so, and they can't write upgrades that match every variation of hardware, but, uh, it, but you'll probably be able to, to, to go through a couple of cycles. So if you buy a new phone, if you get a couple of cycles of operating system upgrade, that gives you two years. And then if you can't upgrade anymore, you've got another two years of support on that operating system, which is not being upgraded. That gives you about four years, and that ought to be long enough for, 
for your phone. I'll give a link to Project Treble so you can see which, uh, which, which vendors do it. And now, if you want to get hardware that's going to last as long as possible, you might as well just get a, a phone made by Google. And they make the Pixel. And of course, when they do operating system upgrades, they're going to make certain that their hardware is supported with the upgrades. So that might give you the best end of life cycle if you if you go with the with a Pixel phone, which is actually made by Google. Sorry for such a long answer, but it is a little bit complicated, and I can see why you're confused by the whole thing. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc and Jim, an old chum, Mr. Big Voice. I stumbled on this news report about 911 failures, and everybody's finger pointing, but nobody really knows who's at fault. The 911 outages have become a fact of life. Are we even fixing this? Does Doc have any insight on this tech question, tech failure? Love the show. All the best, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, this 911 failure is getting to be a big problem. Uh, for instance, on Monday, September 28th of this year, Several states, including Arizona, California, Colorado, actually 14 states in all, reported 911 outages in various cities and localities. Now, and so the question is, how could you have this broad swath of jurisdictions have all of their 911s fails? Well, initially, people said, well, it must be, must be the cloud vendor. So they are, and Microsoft Azure was, was the cloud system that was used for many of these things. But Microsoft looked at their systems and they said they had no cloud failures. So they said it's not our fault. Then they, people started looking a little bit deeper and there were two carriers that actually carry, that are actually two service providers that provide 911. The first one is Intrado, I-N-T-R-A-D-O, Intrado. They said that one of their vendors had a network service problem and the vendor that they were using was Lumen. So Lumen was providing the, uh, the network support from it. And it turns out if you go to Lumen's page, it said, in fact, that their private and public clouds were down for a while. So that is the cause. But it turns out Intrado and Lumen have been involved with 911 failures that on and off for the last, you know, for the last seven or eight years. And I mean, in fact, the FCC fined those two companies Five hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars in 2019 for an outage that lasted uh, 65 minutes in 2018. Earlier than that, earlier in the year, earlier in the decade, around 2014, they were both fined 17 million dollars by the FCC for for an outage, and so they have an issue. In fact, in those previous fines, both companies had a different name, and they keep changing their name as though that's going to disguise the fact that they're causing a problem. Now, one of the problems here, these are very complicated software systems, and they're one laid on top of another, laid on top of another, laid on top of another. And so the 2014 failure was really caused by, by a simple um, uh, numbering uh, system, where every time a, a new call comes in, it, it, it numbers that call, it, it provides a number. And the numbering algorithm failed, so they couldn't assign a number to new calls coming in, and the whole thing went down. So it was really a software glitch. And so these complex systems, when they're just sort of pieced together in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of a random way, they're not so reliable. So 
I think the FCC is going to have to provide some specifications, some software engineering specifications to create a more robust software system for our 911 calls with, that have backups built in. See, there's, there's no backup here. It fails, it's down. So they could dictate that there would be a backup that, that could work in place, and then you have to stress test it, and you've got to see what happens if this occurs or that occurs, and none of that is in the specification. So I think that um, whoever is, uh, is actually managing the overall 911 system, they should put software engineering requirements on those systems, or it's just going to keep happening. Uh, we got an email from Hawk in Bowie. Dear Doc and Jim, I recently updated the operating system on my iPhone to iOS 14. Now my battery life sucks. I've got to recharge my phone throughout the day. I've tried rebooting my phone. Nothing works. What are my options? This is frustrating. Well, uh, Hawk, this problem with the new operating system does cause problems for some users. Not many, but for some. And, and like, for instance, I upgraded to iOS 14. I had no trouble. It didn't affect me at all. But, but there are reports on the web that people are reporting that their battery life is failing and that many of their apps are failing. And you appear to be one of the unlucky ones. Now, Apple released a... Um, a, um, a support article about this, and this is what they said. The, the only way to fix it is to, actually, is to actually back up your iPhone to the iCloud, erase all the content and settings from your iPhone, and then restore the device from the backup. In other words, you're going to have to completely do a, a new installation of your operating system and data from the backup. And they said that will actually work it. Uh, it's, uh, you know, they gave instructions on the support page on how to do that. But if you do it wrong, you may lose your data. So if you're a little unsure about how to proceed with this process in order to make certain that you don't make some strategic error in uh, wiping your phone and restoring the data, you could go to the Apple Store, go to the Genius Bar, and they will walk you through it. And you do, do the whole thing at the Apple Store. And then you'll know that you'll have it being that it'll be done correctly. That is actually a huge. This problem is a huge software failure on the part of Apple, and it's giving them somewhat of a black eye. I'm just I'm just glad that it didn't affect me. I hope you. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about you, yours, Hawk. But I, you know, I, I, I hope you can fix yours. We got an email from Jay in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I've been on Facebook for a while and I keep getting hundreds of emails every day. I don't need all these emails because I check my notifications on Facebook. How can I stop them? I hate, I hate being inundated with Facebook emails. Well, Jay, it's very easy to stop these emails coming to you from Facebook. And uh, all you have to do, the easiest way to do it, go to, go to your Facebook page on, a, on your computer, on your desktop or laptop computer, and log into your account. Then click on the down arrow located on the right side of the blue bar at the top, that down arrow. Then click on settings. It's your standard settings. And then down in settings, you'll see something called notifications. There'll be a notifications link over in the left column. Click on email. 
And then you'll see what and you'll see what you'll receive section and just uncheck all of those. Now, the only emails that you do want to receive, don't uncheck them all. You do want to receive some emails. You want to have emails sent to you that are regarding account changes, security issues or privacy. These are not notification. You're getting notification emails every time somebody you know updates to their timeline. You don't want any of those. But important emails regarding security or somebody trying to hack into your account, you, you want to get those emails. Um, and there, you can go through a similar steps on the mobile app, and that should fix your problem. Best of luck there, Jay. We got an email from Tung in Cleveland. Dear Tech Talk, I have many pictures on my iPhone that are private. Um, <laughs> We've... We've had this discussion before, haven't we? Yeah, this is this is our infamous uh, infamous listener from Cleveland. Dong. <laughs> I'm afraid to let anybody use my iPhone because they may see my private pictures. Oh boy! <laughs> is there? Well, we don't know what they are. They could be grandchildren, Jim. Just just you know, you don't know what the private pictures are, really. <laughs> I think we is have an idea. Is there any way to hide these pictures? Love the show, Dong in Cleveland. Well, Thong, the, the Apple um, iPhone now allows you to hide your photos. It, okay, it used to be for quite a while, you could hide photos by putting in what they call the hidden folder. And so you, you just, you could hide a photo and it would just, and that photo would be transferred to a folder it was called hidden. And then when you just look at your pictures, it won't come up and the hidden folder is just not displayed automatically. Like if you would... If you would log into your iCloud account uh, with your Apple TV and the screensaver comes up and it just shows all your pictures uh, to anybody sitting in the room, anything that's in the hidden folder would not be shown. Now, the problem is they really weren't hidden because somebody could get to your iPhone. They could simply go to photos, go to albums, click and scroll down till they see the hidden folder. And then they click on that and all the photos are there. So they're really not hidden. They're just put in a in a subdirectory, it was called hidden. Well, Google, uh, Apple finally fixes, they now allow you to hide the hidden folder. And so uh, and so now it is a little bit better, to easier to hide photos now. So you put all your photos in the hidden folder as before. And then what you wanna do, you wanna make it so that the hidden folder doesn't show up. So you go to that, you open, open up settings on your iPhone and then tap on photos. And then you scroll down to hidden album and you want to disable the hidden album so that you just turn that off, disable the hidden album. And at that point, the hidden album does not show up in the list of albums. It's still there, but it doesn't show up. So now it's a much better way to hide those special photos, Tom. Listen, we love your email. We do. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. Saturday morning, you're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, 1077 FM HD2, southwest of Washington, and in Loudoun County, 104.5 FM. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Donald Irvin Knuth. K-N-U-T-H. Knuth. Donald Knuth is a computer scientist and author of the multi-volume work, The Art of Computing Programming. This is a classic. He's also the father of the analysis of algorithms. He wrote this book right in the beginning, uh, right in the infancy stage of computer science, and he really put a structure around analyzing algorithms. He's also creator of the text computer type setting system, and he wrote that because he was writing all these books with complicated equations, and it was just too hard to use the typesetting software that uh, was available to him at the time, so he just decided to write his own typesetting software. Knuth was born January 10, 1938 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. His father owned a small printing business and taught bookkeeping. That's probably why he... Uh, probably why Knuth was interested in, you know, that text formatting because of his father's printing business. Now, Knuth chose physics. He actually loved music. Um, but when he went to Case Institute of Technology, he, he majored in physics rather than music. Now, while studying physics at Case Institute of Technology, he was introduced to the IBM 650. This is one of the earliest versions of the IBM mainframe. And, um, after reading the computer manual, Knuth decided that actually the operating system wasn't that good, and he decided to completely rewrite the assembly and compiler code for the machine because he believed he could do it better. I mean, that's, that is an impressive feat for someone who is an undergraduate in computer science, and he did it. I mean, this was sort of his MO. He would tackle difficult problems, he'd jump in and do them. In 1958, Knuth constructed a program uh, where he analyzed the value of each player on his school's basketball team. And he was able to predict how many points they would get in each game. He had a very complicated algorithm. This actually was a very successful analysis, and his work was published by Newsweek, and it was also covered by Walter Conkright on CBS Evening News. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, he's he just worked on everything. There was another 
when he was in grade school, they had a, uh, a contest where you could, how many words could you come up with? They took a candy bar wrapper and they took all the letters in the candy bar wrapper <laughs> and they said, who can come up with the most words in the candy bar wrapper? Wow. And, uh, and the faculty there, they came up with 2,500 <laughs> and he wrote it. He wrote an algorithm that would do an analysis and match it up against uh, the unabridged uh, Oxford Dictionary. And he was able to turn in 4,500 words rather than 2,500. Mm. He won the contest, and his grade school was given a free TV set, and everybody in the school, all the students in the school, were given a candy bar, with that, with, which had that name. Uh, well, so he just you know, you was don't know very the candy clever bar at solving problems. Do you know like what the that. candy bar was? He then switched from physics to mathematics, and because uh, he he actually liked mathematics quite a bit, he ended up receiving his bachelor of uh, and master's degree in mathematics simultaneously from Case. Then he went to Caltech and he got a PhD in mathematics. At Caltech. Now, after receiving his PhD, Knuth joined Caltech's faculty as, as an assistant professor, and he accepted a commission to write a book on computer programming, on programming uh, 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 compilers, com on, on computer programming language compilers. He was going to write a book on that, and he started working on the project, and he decided that he could not write this book about compilers because he needed to develop the fundamental theory of computer programming first. So he started writing a book then, which was laying the foundations of computer programming, and, it be, and, uh, and the book was called, ultimately, The Art of Computer Programming. He originally decided was going to publish this as a single volume, but then he developed an outline for the book, and he concluded that to actually properly handle all the topics it would actually require six volumes, not one. And later on, he, he, he said it would require seven volumes to thoroughly cover the topic. He published the first volume in 1968. He felt that computer science, uh, since it was so new, that many of the papers, fundamental papers in computer science, were simply wrong. That was one of his motivations for writing the auto computing program. He just wanted to tell the story. In 1968, just before he, he published the first volume, Knuth accepted a job working on problems for the National Security Agency because he liked to work on all these complicated math problems. And so he went, he went to work for NSA, but he left that position very soon after that because uh, he had severe disagreement over the Vietnam War and he just wanted to have nothing to do with the Defense Department. So he left. Uh, and he was in, went back and he went back, took another job and he, and he continued to work on his, uh, uh, on, on his book, the first volume of the Art of Computer Programming. But he was so frustrated with all the typesetting software that was out there because these are complicated equations and it's hard to typeset, you know, complicated mathematical equations. He just stopped working on the book for a while and he wrote his own formatting language called TEX, T-E-X. Capital T, little e, capital X, text. And uh, that's an elegant, uh, an elegant language for formatting. You just basically can, can type in, uh, um, you know, a simple 
combination of letters and numbers and symbols just, just from the keyboard, and the language will automatically translate that into a beautifully format, formatted equation when it's printed. It's, it's, it's really an elegant solution to, uh, to typesetting uh, scientific texts. He, uh, he then uh, he joined the faculty there at, uh, at, uh, at Caltech, and he, and he continued teaching and working. Um, but it turned out that he ended up, he ended up retiring after about, uh, you know, 20 years. And he said, you know, I've got to retire because it's going to take 20 years for me to finish my, my book, The Art of Programming. So he retired from teaching, so he could work. Uh, so he could work on his uh, art, on the program Art of Computer Programming. And so he, each day, while he's you know he has discipline here, he spends a couple hours in the library. He spends about half an hour at the swimming pool, and the rest of the time is at home reading and writing. And he also, because he never gave up p uh, music, he loves to play the piano and the organ in the music room of his house. Finally, in 2012. He had published three volumes of the book and the first part of the fourth volume. And, and actually, he's never gotten to volume five yet. He's still, he sort of slowed down a bit. So he's published three volumes and, and half of the fourth volume. Now, he does not like his books to have any errors. And if anybody finds an error in his book, he reward a typographical error or any kind of mistake. He rewards them with a finder's fee of two dollars and fifty six cents for every every. So you might say, why is he giving them two dollars and fifty six? Why is he cents? giving them two dollars and fifty six cents? Because two fifty six is equal to one hexadecimal dollar. Oh, brother. Okay, let me explain that. Hexadecimal is base 16 numbering system. So the first digit is the ones place. The second digit is the 16s place. See, if base 10, the second digit will be the tens place, but this is the second digit here is the 16 place, and the third digit is 16 squared, which and 16 squared is 256. So in hexadecimal 100 is 256 converted, converted to, to decimal. So he would give out $2.56 because that was the classical hexadecimal dollar. And his reward checks are among computer science's most prized trophies. They're never cashed. They're framed. Ah. It's an honor to get a check from Knuth. Now, he gives informal lectures at Stanford University, which he calls computer musings. He, he was also in his retirement visiting professor at the Oxford uh, University, the Department of Computer Science in the United Kingdom. He was there a visiting professor there until 2017. Now, Knuth is an organist and composer. In 2016, he completed a musical piece for the organ titled Fantasia Apocalypse. Apocalyptica. Uh, in I found which appropriate music. Translation of Greek text of the revolution of the revelation of Saint John the Divine into music. Oh, I hear it. You hear that? Well, it's, that's not him. This is somebody else more famous. Oh yeah. 
Sorry to, sorry to distract you. Continue on. Oh, that is, you know, th this is really a classical show. There's no doubt about it. Of course. In 1971, Knuth was the recipient of the first ACM Grace Murray Hopper Award. He's received various other awards, including the Turing Award. That's like the Nobel Award in Computer Science. Yeah. The National Medal of Science, the John von Neumann Medal, and the Kyoto Prize. So he is a highly acclaimed individual and really a quite a renaissance man with all of his music and musical interests. So there you go. Everything you want to know about Donald Irwin <laughs> Knuth. <laughs> hey, I've, I, I found a, a, a fun fact. Did you, did you know what the name of the chocolate bar was that he used? I forgot. What is the name? It's the original Ziggler Giant Bar. Oh, okay. <laughs> which is which is pure milk chocolate goodness with freshly roasted peanuts. Nobody else has ever made a candy bar like that before. And you can make 4,500 words out of a letter. It's a lot of letters when you think about it. Yeah. So, so what was the name of the candy bar again? Original Ziggler Giant Bar. I sent you a link in, into your email since we're working okay. remotely here. So you can Very take a look good. at it. By the way, I just ordered a couple of them. I will send one to you. Okay, with, fantastic. As, as, your, as your, uh, your prize for the week. We are listening to Tech Talk. It is Saturday morning, and your, your chance to win a food other than an original Ziggler Giant Bar coming up next by <laughs> playing the pop quiz. 877-936-9333, the number to dial. This is uh, Tech Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, southwest of Washington now on 1077 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, 
Dr. Richard Schertz. Oh, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You can all be seated now. They, in this they virtual are. They are. Plan. They're on a riser, so it looks like they're standing. Okay, I see that. Well, this is not simply a radio show. This is a classroom of the airways, and we want to test whether our class has been listening to the pop quiz. To get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get tickets to one of our fine dining locations once they open after the pandemic, two tickets, and you will also get an A-plus for today's show. Earlier in the show, I talked about Donald Irwin Knuth. He, of course, is the author of The Art of Computer Programming and the father of the analysis of algorithms. Now, Knuth, after he published his book, did not like any errors. And whenever anybody would find an error, he would send them a check for $2.56. Where did that amount come from, $2.56? If you get the right answer to that, you'll win your prize and get an A-plus for today's show. That is correct. If you know the answer to today's question, now's your chance to show off to the rest of the class. Pick up your phone, give us a call. Dialing from west of the Rocky, it's 877-936-9333. If you're knee-deep in fish scales east of Playa del Sur, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're playing your organ in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. Under top advice, it's taking a Clorox tab, 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Let's talk about the website of the week. Yes, we shall. Ancient Earth. This sounds what do you cool. get? when you combine the largest dinosaur database with the power of Google Earth-like technology, you get a 3D map dubbed the Ancient Earth, and it's a free service. Ancient Earth is the brainchild of Ian Webster, the curator of the dinosaur database. Uh, And you can search whether dinosaurs lived in your neck neck of the woods. You can put in your zip code uh, your address, and it will locate you on the Earth, and you can see whether dinosaurs lived around you. But what's more interesting, you can go back in time as the as the great plates migrated. See, in the beginning, we were just one solid piece of Earth, and it split up into all the continents due to plate teutonics. So you can put in your zip code, and then you can watch how your particular location on the Earth evolved as you go back in time and you can go all the way back to 240 million years ago and you can still see where your spot of the earth was located at that time it's kind of fun to play with this and it's very educational for kids so you can simply go to dinosaurpictures.org and then search for ancient earth or you can just probably google ancient earth again it's just a lot of fun to play with and very very educational for kids Excellent. We have somebody who liked to play. Where did that come from? Okay, hang on a second. We're going to try to get the phones up here, Doc. Uh, Okay. Just a second. We're going to go here. This is line number one, and Steve is calling us from Catonsville. Steve, are you there? Wait a minute. There we go. Steve, are you there? Yes, I am here. Okay, Doc, go ahead and oh, ask Oh, very good. Earlier in the show, we talked about Donald Knuth, uh, 
the uh, author of the Art of Computer Programming, whenever he would somebody would find an error in one of his books, he would send them two dollars and fifty six cents. Where did that amount come from? Yes, it is a hexa hexadecimal dollar. That is correct. Zero, zero, that is correct. Steve, thanks a, thanks a lot for listening. Hang on a second. We're going to send you back to Andrew. He will take your information, and we'll send the prize out to you forthwith. It is Saturday morning. This is Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, southwest of Washington at 107.7 FM HD 2, and also in Loudoun County at 104.5 FM. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. I guess we're just going to have to put up with the door the way it is. I think we're just going to have to do that. You know, this week, you know, that back at the bumper, you sort of reflect on things. And uh, I was reflecting on the life of Steve Jobs and what we can learn from it. Uh, he died at age 56, and yet he accomplished so much. And he had, uh, he had so many obstacles along the way. It's just an interesting story. Now, he was a founder, of course, of Apple Computer. And he was the man who transformed Apple from nearly bank, being bankrupt into one of the most successful companies in the world. Uh, he started Apple with, uh, you know, Wozniak back in the, um, you know, back in the in the 70s, and and Apple went public in 1980. And when they issued their IPO, he created hundreds of millionaires at the company. Um, and they were they they had the Apple the original Apple the Apple II that was really their mainstay, um, but Steve Jobs had seen some really interesting technology at the Palo Alto Research Center Park. We featured the guy who's, who who basically started that research center, and they were pioneering work with the graphical user interface and the the interface now that we know know and love so well with all of our computers, 
And so he wanted to use their technology at Apple. So when they went public, Apple gave a million dollars of pre-IPO stock to the Xerox, to Xerox, so they could actually use the technology from the Palo Alto Research Center. Now, he went there and, uh, and he saw what they were making in the graphic user interface, and this act, this, all of this technology led to what was the uh, Apple Lisa computer, which was a very advanced computer, and, uh, and it actually incorporated all the elements that have been developed at the Palo, Palo Alto Research Center, very advanced. The problem is it was too expensive. Ah. Nobody bought it. Too expensive. And, of course, that was named after Lisa, who was Steve Jobs' daughter, who he always denied having, yet he named the computer after her. Now, they ended up morphing that into, uh, in, 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 into the Macintosh, and the Macintosh was actually a, um, a computer that was really pioneered the whole graphical user interface and sort of what you see is what you get when you do the printing, so-called WYSIWYG. WYSIWYG. The WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get. And Apple introduced the Macintosh in 1984. And this was a more of a, uh, of a mainstream computer that was more affordable than the Lisa. Now, the Mac ran on a 32-bit processor compared to the 6 bit processor that the IBM PCs ran on. It had 128K of memory. It was an immediate success. More than 400,000 Macs were sold. And uh, the Mac had an impact just not on the people who used it, but it had an impact on the entire field. Literally every computer that's come out since the Mac has emulated that user interface. By 1995, Windows had copied the Mac interface with, with Windows 95, and so we were off to the races. Then, of course, but then, of course, he was fired. He, uh, <laughs> right, yeah. He, oh, he was also the driving force between the 1984 commercial where these guys marching in like robots and they threw a, an axe at the screen to sort of kill the hypnotic effect that the IBM PC has on the market. Now, Steve Jobs hired John Scully, who was from uh, Pepsi, Pepsi Cola, I think, and he brought him brought him in to run the company. Now, uh, Scully was basically a numbers guy, and they were making a lot of money selling the Apple II, which was the old technology. And the Mac, the Mac sales were sluggish, even though they had this flashy, uh, flashy um, ad in, at, at the Super Bowl in 1984. They they just were sluggish. And Scully said, look, we can make more money on this Apple II. Let's don't put any money in the Mac. And so Scully went to the board of directors of Apple and said, look, I want to scuttle this whole Macintosh deal because it's not making enough money for us. It's too expensive, not enough profit margin, and I just want to milk this Apple II cow. And, uh, and, and Steve Jobs said, absolutely not. We're going to dump the Apple II. It might be making money, but it's old technology, and we're going to put all of our eggs in the Mac basket. The board of trustees, at Scully's advice, fired Steve Jobs. He was fired from the company that he started. And he, he said, well, if you're going to do that, I'm going to take out all my stock and I'm just going to divest myself of Apple. So he took out $150 million worth of stock and he left. And he started his next venture, the next operating system. 
which ended up being a, a revolutionary operating system based on the Unix operating system. He ported Unix and he put and he put a uh, and he put a graphical user interface on the Unix base and he created the next operating system. Now, at the commencement speech in 2005, Jobs said, this is what I was reflecting on, that his firing from Apple in the mid 80s was the best thing that could ever have happened to him because he was able to unleash himself and really develop new things. He not only, while he was away from Cupertino, he not only founded Next, but he bought a fledgling animation studio, which ultimately would become Pixar, which actually has revolutionized animated films. Now in 1996, this was 10 years after he'd been fired, Apple decided to buy the next operating system because they wanted to incorporate it into their operating system. So they bought Next for $400 million. <laughs> and uh, now, of course, Next was still run by Steve Jobs. So the deal was, after they bought Next, they made Steve Jobs the CEO. And the Next operating system became the basis of the Mac operating system X, Mac OS X. And so uh, once Steve Jobs got back to Apple, at that point, the board believed in his vision and the rest is history. Apple took off like a shot. So I just was reflecting on that, that he overcame huge adversity, fired from the company that he started, and yet he prevailed because he never lost sight of his vision. Well, and I guess you also learned from Steve Jobs that uh, you learn from your mistakes too, right? You learn from your mistakes, yeah. He probably was more diplomatic in working with the board going forward, mm -hmm. I would think. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. He did. Now, the thing about Steve Jobs, he was a. Uh, he never wrote a line of code. He never designed a circuit board, uh, and so he always felt that he was like the conductor of a symphony, and he would conduct the programmers there on the left like the violins and he would conduct the hardware developers like the uh, like like the brass section and he would basically make the orchestra sing by how he directed it and drove it and people who worked for him said he was a hard driver and his vision made things happen so he so you always need somebody who can direct the people in the technical trenches to work on things that are meaningful. It's a, it's a really a great story. It's yeah. an inspirational story. And he died at 56, and yeah. look all that he accomplished. Amazing. Mm. Now, you know what I want to talk about? I'm not, I, might, I might not get to Wikipedia. I want to talk about how to save money with these carrier plans. That's yeah, kind, this kind of interesting. Now, we all know there are three big providers, Verizon, T-Mobile, and AT&T. And you sign up with them. And pretty soon you're paying hundreds of dollars a month on your phone bill. They just keep at it's it, it's sort of like the old uh, cable companies. You sign up, you know, for a hundred dollar media package, and pretty soon you're paying two twenty a month for media package. And they keep increasing it. And so people that have these big carriers end up getting big bills. You can save a lot of money by switching to an MVNO. Now that stands for mobile. Virtual Network Operator, Mobile Virtual Network Operator, MVNO. And what these MVNOs do, they buy access to the cellular networks of the big carriers. 
and they resell it. That's how they work. So for instance, Mint, Mint Mobile, Mint Mobile was launched in 2016. And you can get uh, a phone a phone line for $25 to $40 a month. That's it. The unlimited plan, get this, the unlimited plan, and it's a great service, is $40. You can get a, can get a budget service, which gives you some limitations, for $25 a month. And they've got both the 4G LTE as well as the 5G network in every plan with no speed caps. But after 35 gigabytes, they reduce the speed of your data. So there's kind of a, a soft cap. And you can make free calls to Canada and Mexico. Now, this network runs on the T-Mobile network. They're basically reselling T-Mobile. So if you've got a T-Mobile phone or an AT&T phone, you can use Mint because that, that supports GSM. Now, if you, if you prefer Verizon, you can go with Visible. Visible is another uh, MVNO, and it uses the Verizon network, and it's $40 a line. And for the unlimited plan, you pay $40 a month for one line, and that includes taxes and fees. It comes with unlimited talk, text, and data with no data cap. Now, there's no 5G access yet, only 4G LTE. You'll get a mo you also get a mobile Wi-Fi hotspot included. Now, video streaming is restricted to 480 uh, pixels, uh, 480p resolution, 480 progressive resolution, and music streaming is held to... 500 kilobits per second. Now, Visible has only one plan, but it's only $40 a month, which, you know, for the Verizon network is not really that bad. So if, so if you're on Verizon and you've got a couple of phones on Verizon and you're paying a couple hundred dollars, you could get two phones on Verizon, be $80 a month, including taxes, and there aren't any add-ons. Now, what my son likes is Google Fi. Uh -huh. Now, Google Fi is $20 a line and $10 a gigabyte. So, and the nice thing is, you know, like if you think you're going to use uh, um, uh, one gigabyte of data, you, you pay them $10. And if you don't use it, it just carries over the next month. And the nice thing with Google Fi is that when you're traveling outside of the U.S., it's not, there's no roaming charges. You still pay $10 per gigabyte of data. So, you know, you're not stuck with these huge international, international uh, um you know, roaming charges. And so if you if you do a lot of international travel, it really works uh, quite well. And this this no roaming supports 200 countries. You can go there and there's and it's no roaming charge in 200 countries. Now, Google Fi uses T-Mobile's network as well as US Cellular's US Cellular's network. And it will pick whichever signal is the best. And um, if you make calls, international calls are a flat 20 cents a minute. My son loves Google Fi. He is like, now, if you go with Google Fi, you have to get the Google phone. You've got to get that's, the Google Pixel. That's what I was ask, going to ask you. That's the only choice. You have to get the Google Pixel. They only support their own phone. Now, now they're, they're talking about supporting other phones, but you got to go with the Google phone. So these are three options, Mint, Visible, and Gigabyte. They can all save you money, and then you don't have to pay for these bloated uh, huge plans from the major carriers. Okay, let's talk about Wikipedia. All right. Now I think we've got enough time for that. I just okay. want to get that, because you can save money on these MVNOs. I want to get through, the, through that. Now, Wikipedia is doing a major redesign, the first in a decade. It's, a, it's really kind of a big deal. They're going to redesign the, the desktop uh, of the Wikipedia page. Now, since Wikipedia launched in 2001, 
The encyclopedia has published more than 50 million articles in 300 languages. Entries are created, edited, updated by volunteers, and the web website is hosted by the Wikimedia Foundation, a nonprofit organization. Now, the, the main purpose is to create, learn, and curate content using volunteers. Now, we're going to see changes like there'll be a reconfigured logo, improved search functionality. That's, that's a problem searching on Wikipedia, searching for things. There's going to be a collapsible sidebar, so you've got easier navigation and simplified language toggling. So you can, you know, right now, if you want to go to another language, you actually have to it's it's you actually have to put in the the web address of the other Wikipedia language, and this is going to allow you to toggle between languages more, more, uh, more, more conveniently. Now, this is a multi-year project to redesign Wikipedia, and I I think it's really a good project. I love Wikipedia. I've I've, I've done some editing on Wikipedia. I I picked a. Uh, because I, I, I wanted to become an editor, so I thought, okay, well, I, so I picked a, a, a town that one of our relatives lives in Kansas, Erie, Kansas, and I looked up their page in Wikipedia, and it was just a pathetic page. <laughs> so I went in there and started editing this Wikipedia page and adding things, looking things up. I got, I got a lot of history stuff, added references, and pretty soon, uh, once I started working on it, uh, there were like two or three other people in the group that came in there and they started adding stuff. And so we had a collective activity working on this thing. And it was really quite a pleasant activity doing that editing. I, I kind of enjoyed that. And do, you, do you get a I hexadecimal also, dollar yes. per edit? Do you get a hexadecimal dollar per edit? No, you get no, you get you don't you don't get paid a penny. <laughs> you don't get paid a penny. But I was also curious because people are saying, well, you know, Wikipedia, you know, people can put up anything they want. So how do you know it's true? So I created a like a fake uh, account in Wikipedia because I wanted to run an experiment and I didn't want it to impinge on my credibility at Wikipedia. So I created a, a fake account mm -hmm. and I went into some prominent pages and I posted some information that I knew was absolutely false. And it was corrected, I'm telling you, by editors on that page within 10 minutes. Wow. So I was super impressed. I would have deleted it anyway, but that was my test on the credibility of Wikipedia. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. Check out our website and tell them if you heard about the programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.